Hello, and welcome to Marketing Blabs. This podcast is brought to you by Marketing Labs, an expert digital marketing agency based in Nottinghamshire. If you're a business owner or a marketing professional looking for straightforward, non-salesy tips and advice to help grow your business online, then this podcast is for you. Strap in, because we're about to reveal the things that other agencies would rather you didn't know. Hello listeners, here we go again, ready and raring to go for the next blab. We hope you enjoyed the last pod where we talked about digital trends and how you can utilize AI to improve your workflow. By now, the majority of you should know who I am, but for those that don't, my name's Tom and I'm the creative director here at Marketing Labs and the host for this podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about what it takes to create a great brand something I'm excited to get stuck into myself. Here with me today to chat about probably the best subject yet is Mel, our head of content. How are you doing, Mel? Good, thank you. First pod for you, are you excited? Very nervous. Oh, you'll be fine. Josie? Hello. Our digital marketing assistant, how are you doing? I'm good. This is the third, first pod for you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, first one for me. We did a few trial ones though, didn't we? Yeah, I was great on the trial. And oh, then, we, uh, you know, Cut I'm it glad out, that fine. you said that you're great. Thanks. You good. <laughs> and finally, Nick, our head of digital. How hey you doing, Tom. Nick? I'm good, mate. Good, good. Uh, who won the pasta competition today? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> just, just for the listeners, we had a pasta making competition, and I won. It was rigged. So we're here to talk about what it makes to create, what it takes, sorry, to create a great brand. I always think with branding there's a big misconception there I've, I've been doing what i've been doing for a long time and a lot of people i think are a bit confused about what branding actually is or what a brand is i think a lot of people think that a brand is just a logo but it's not it there's lots of other things that you have to sort of consider before you even get to the point where you're designing the logo such as understanding your audience which is obviously a really big part of it you've got to understand who you who you're targeting at the end of the day otherwise the the visual side of the brand isn't going to resonate or or the messaging so yeah. i think it's not just down to the visual side either it's anything with your business if you're building your whole business and you're wanting to target let's say the younger generation gen z that's who you're looking to target it's no good if you're coming up with this brand that looks so premium and luxurious and expensive or if you're targeting them through platforms like Facebook um, because that's not where that audience sits that's not what they're more likely to be interested in people of that age group are a lot younger they wouldn't be able to afford luxury they're not really using platforms like Facebook anymore to connect with them so down to just creating your brand and where you want to sit you need to know the audience that you're targeting and how to reach them. Yeah, I think just to add to that as well, I think traditional demographics are obviously kind of how you reach your audience online, how you define them based on um, their age, their gender, their location, etc. I think a key, a really key aspect also to consider is kind of attitudinal statements and building personas around who and what your customers believe and what attitudes they have to certain things. 
And uh, although you can't target them specifically, traditionally at least, if you can cater your messaging around that to a traditional demographic, but really precise, really targeted messaging around that, you you much likely resonate with those people uh, to a much greater level and in, you know improve click through rates or conversions or whatever your objectives are. Um, so it's, it's certainly something to bear in mind because traditional targeting, although it can be very precise, you can still be talking to very, very different people, even if you're quite precise on how you've targeted them. I guess the buyer persona side of things, it's always useful. Let's say I'm doing a brand workshop with somebody who is starting from scratch. They've got budget for all of that kind of work. And understanding the personas will also help later down the line for things like Google Ads, I, I assume. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's key, really. So you've, you've got two things with, with your target audience. You've got who your audience are now, because um, that might be very different to who you want them to be in the future. So, um, you know, who typically uses your product or your services? Uh, what do they look like? Are you going to grow with them? Do you need to expand past them? What's the size of that audience? You know, are you going to open up your product range or whatever it might be uh-huh. in a few years time to cater for a wider or a different audience set? So having a clear picture of uh, and a clear map, I suppose, of of your goals and your objectives over the the next one year, three years, five years, and and mapping that to um, particular segments and audiences and objectives and targets, I think think is really helpful. I suppose from a creative side of things as well, Mel, you write lots of content. Obviously, when you're writing, you're I, I guess you're taking into account audience a lot of the time. But do people who you're writing the the blogs for understand their audience? I would say mostly, probably not, but. I'd say there's a misconception around understanding um, your audience and who you're targeting. And if, if you're a bigger brand with a lot of money, you can afford to go out and do a lot of expensive market research. But if you don't have that uh, budget to do that, it doesn't mean that you can't write your own buyer persona or a, a, a let's call it a description of the kind of person that you want to target. Because there are cheaper ways of doing it. So you can talk to your salespeople and find out um, what they already know about the customers who are coming to you and um, go out to trade shows, exhibitions, talk to the people there and build up an idea, a picture in your mind of who the people are that you want to target. And then when you're writing anything or uh, doing any kind of creative, you can bear that in mind so that you've always got that reader in my case for for content front of mind so that you you know you know what you're putting together will resonate with them because you know them you know them you know them really well um and like say for smaller brands that don't have a budget to do market research actually speaking to the salespeople who go out and and see these people day in day out getting their insight into who they are that's key i agree i think well ultimately if you if you're understanding your audience albeit what nick said it can change over time if you understand at least your initial audience then you'll be on the right track to sort of start developing your brand and and moving it forward i guess the next thing that you can talk about with regards to audience is then the messaging and how you talk to that audience you've got your personas you know who you're targeting in what areas etc but in, in everyone's experience, how do you create clear messaging that's consistent? I, I think for me, um, there are lots of different ways of doing this and achieving this, but um, organizing yourself and, and creating something like a brand house or some kind of structured framework 
um, can really help and identify how you can consistently pull together marketing that relates specifically to aspects of your brand that you want to be uh, remembered for. So um, doing a bit of research on that, and, and it's really customizable. You could create your own structure within that, or you could use a fairly standard framework. But um, you know, if you search for Brand House online, I'm sure you'll, you'll find something that resonates and, and um, is useful for you. But the, the, the general concept really is, is kind of having a purpose, which is kind of if you were to distill your brand down to its simplest form, what, what would that be? Um, and then you can position your brand around that, so make statements around that and, and delivering against that purpose. And then start to fill, fill in things like attributes, so um, uh, creating a tone of voice, um, you know, getting into the imagery side of things and, um, you know, what, what your logo looks like, what your website looks like, what assets that you have that customers might see that might be front-facing, so storefronts, vans, um, things beyond websites, your, you know, your social ads or TV ads or whatever it might be. You can all then kind of um, pull that together and keep consistency with not only the messaging and how you're delivering that message, but what it looks like and how it represents the brand. Um, and then beyond that, again, you can then start to think about how you can educate people on your brand. So that can all be kind of brought into the framework and what your key messages are and how you're going to kind of instill that uh, with your customers. And then finally, any any kind of proof points that you might have that kind of are evidence points, if you like, of how you relate to the particular messages that you want to that you want to get across as part of your marketing or part of your content that you're creating. I feel like a, a part of it in messaging as well is the tone of voice you use to convey that message. Mel might be able to go into it a little bit more than I can. But deciding on your tone of voice, again, depending on your target audience, completely changes how you're going to talk to them. If it's people of a younger generation, you might be more relaxed, looking at lots of slang, new terms that are coming up that's used by those people. And if it's an older audience, just on its simple basis... You might go, you'd probably go for more of a formal tone or, again, it depends on the company you are. Your tone of voice is quite big in that. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and a bit like the visual side of things, so that if you only saw something written from a particular company, you would be able to identify who they are just from the words on the page without seeing any other identifying markers. And that's the truth. That's true for visual as well, isn't it? So, you know, colours or certain other assets of a brand that you would you would be able to identify where it came from on mm. its own without anything else. Yeah. And that, again, is important for consistency because as Nick says, that's absolutely key when it comes to brand building. We know that people have to see things, hear things, read things multiple times before they remember. Hmm. I think a big part of messaging as well is, I know it sounds quite traditional, but from doing brand workshops with people and businesses, it's getting them to understand what their unique value proposition is or what their USP is, what sets them apart from all their competitors. If you have that in mind, then what I always used to like to do was get get them to make a promise as well. So what sets them apart and what promise are they going to make to that audience that is beyond making money? I always like to use IKEA as an example for that. You know their core principles is that they're creating affordable, functional, products and that is their audience and they promise to do that and it's in their messaging it's in everything that they do their advertising campaigns it's i always use ikea it's a, it's a great example of how making a promise really sticks i know that I know it's a big brand and 
a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast are small businesses, and but it does matter. It's not just a logo at the end of the day. And if you understand your audience and how you're going to talk to them, then you're on the right track. So I was going to say, spinning off your IKEA example on messaging, I think another sort of two brands, but because we're focusing on smaller businesses that that do their messaging really well is Innocent Smoothies and more recently Cereal, the cereal brand. So Innocent Smoothies, they're a lot bigger and they've been around a lot longer, but they position themselves as a really fun smoothie brand. They want to come up with new ideas and stuff for their smoothies quite ahead of the game. I can't think of it. There's Naked Smoothie, that's another smoothie brand, but they're not quite as up Mm. there. But Innocent do it in all of their promotions they just get fun and creative and they've done things with Heinz before of like a bean smoothie. I think one of them accidentally shared, uh, posted their boss's wedding photo on social media at one point or did it as a profile picture, whether that was actually an accident or not, we don't know. But similarly, Surreal is the new cereal brand that's doing it quite well as well with the playful messaging and everything they do. In their recent ad campaign, they were getting people with the same name as famous celebrities, so people like Michael Jordan, and they were finding people just everyday people that had the same names, getting them to try the cereal and getting their quotes being like, oh, Michael Jordan loves our cereal and things like that and using that in the ad campaign. So even in their messaging like that, they're showing that they're different from, they're not your average Kellogg's cornflakes. They're fun and their cereal's different and it stands out. And I think doing things like that, using your messaging in everything you do is so important to to stand out yeah I saw, I saw those campaigns that is something like but michael works on a construction site in yeah. london or something like that yeah like not michael sm- jordan so it's like they wanted think. to do like small small text at the bottom to say it's not actual michael jordan yeah i um, think it was dwayne johnson as well and then on the linkedin post i saw as well they did a follow-up one where they'd sort of crossed it out being like oh our solicitors don't back this and that kind of thing like being really playful with it and that's I think a lot where a lot of companies like that are heading as well and just being a bit more fun and creative and that reflects their brand because it, it it's how their messaging is coming across. Mm. I always I always like those kind of brands to be honest. Innocent are, are really cool, especially in their product packaging and everything. Yeah. We were we were talking about audience and messaging, but obviously a big part of it is then usually the processes when when they've created their audience and understanding what the messaging is, it's it's getting into the visual side, which is the bit I love doing. And a big part of that is colour psychology. I know I know a lot of people take the mick out of me in the office about colours and there is a there is a big big thing there with colour psychology because if you're choosing colours that are gonna essentially represent your brand, you want it to evoke the right feelings and emotions yeah Yeah. I was looking at this recently I found that there was a color called uh, I think it's Baker Miller pink and they found supposedly it's believed that it's meant to make you more relaxed and calm this certain color of pink and so it was used in like psych wards I think it was mainly in America painting the full places pink to try and keep the people in there calm as you've been used in prisons and everything and I'm pretty sure there was also an American football team that put it in their in their home grounds they put it in the away team's locker room so that any away team that came in would supposedly be relaxed before so sort of a bit of psychology in it and um things like that i found really interesting there's, there's lots of different examples that you can give for example yellow mel's were in a yellow top 
essentially that's a, a vibrant colour that's typically typically going to make people feel warm, might feel optimistic, or it's it's quite an energetic colour, if that makes sense. So that's why when I came in this morning, I had a spring in my step, because you've got a yellow jumper on. <laughs> that, that's why, okay. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> that explains it. <laughs> but it, it might be because you want to give a, or put across a friendly and approachable image or messaging. Yellow is a colour that's used a lot to portray value as well. Mm. So that's quite a big one. Colour is a, a really important way of telling a brand story. So it often means more than it, it might seem at first sight. So there are a lot of brands that um, we use the colours from their um, country of origins flag. So IKEA, for example, the yellow and blue is from the Swedish flag. And there are a lot of um, Italian food manufacturers that use uh, red, green and white, the colours of the Italian flag, so that it's telling part of their story of, of mm. that brand, of who they are and where they've come from, um, which for, for, for food and, and Italian food specifically is um, important to their value proposition. Gives it that authenticity, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. You could use an example of, let's say, blue. It tends to be a colour that is used to portray trust, reliability and calmness, for example. Um, it's used quite a lot in um, industries like financial technology companies, uh, maybe healthcare organisations, because it's trying to portray those that, that message. Uh, example could be um, IBM or, or Visa. Yeah, NHS, NHS yeah, that's a perfect example. Visa, they use blue in their branding to convey a sense of security, which makes sense because <laughs> you're, you're buying things with your card and it's a brand that you want to trust. Yeah. So that, that, there's some good examples there. I think there's lots of ways people can consider colour more than, oh, I want green because I like I green. Like green. <laughs> what colours do you like, Nick? I'm quite boring, Tom. Um, blue, I think, is my favourite colour. You are quite a calm person, to be fair, so mm. that yeah. that makes sense. Mostly calm. <laughs> <laughs> what made you What made you choose our marketing labs purple, Tom? Well, it's not purple. It's it's an RGB colour, so we're fully digital. We don't print anything. So when I considered our colour scheme, I took that into account, and initially we were just using a. I don't know, a CMYK blue or a, a standard sky blue type colour. So it was how we could take that to the next level and make it a little bit more innovative. And I guess when considering the brand and the colour scheme, that's what I sort of took into account to make it sort of more technical because we are a technical company. If you add more purples to it, then that represents that. I think that's quite important as well. Is I remember you teaching me that when I first started is using RGB for... Well, looking at where your branding is going to be, whether you're mostly a print company or whether you're mostly digital or whether it's both, and then choosing whether you use RGB or CYMK to do your colour because they will print differently and appear differently on in those different formats. And you need to take that into consideration. Absolutely. It's usually good practice to design for CMYK first. Well, it was traditionally because a lot of companies would print lots of stuff. Uh, but now it's moving more the other way where you'd need to consider more uh, hex codes, RGB and, and things like that. It's, it's a little bit more technical, but um, I, I'd say that every every company should consider having a Pantone reference as well, um, just in case they ever do get anything printed. It's, it's nice to have those Pantone refer- references in there. 
I think when you've got your visual identity as well, it's so important to make sure that you reflect that in everything you do and everything, like whether that's your email signature, whether it's infographics you're producing, your, even your team LinkedIn pages. We've got all our LinkedIn pages with all our branding on and even for our personal profiles. And I think just in anything that you produce, you've got to reflect that visual identity to show it as a solid solid piece together. It comes back to consistency again, doesn't it? You know, ideally what you need to do is map out every single touch point that a, that a customer could have along their journey with you. So whether that's your marketing, whether it's your website, whether it's offline stuff, um, how do you represent yourself across all of those and how do you make sure it's as consistent as possible? Um, and, and, and making sure that... Um, how you do that represents your brand in the best way. So uh, coming back to your point on the visual identity stuff though, and the different colors and uh, and what have you, uh, th there might be a, you know, a spectrum obviously of colors and, and slightly different changes in colors could, could mean different things to customers. So it is worth spending a little bit of time doing the user research and focus groups. And you can do that relatively cost effectively. There's lots of people that can help with that, you know, and spending, um, you know, a few hundred pounds or a little bit more than that, just to make sure that you have an A versus a B or even a C if you have that. And just make sure that your customers, how you've identified them, what segments they exist in, actually agree with your um, version of what you or how you want to present yourself. Um, and, you know, and you can really maximize your results by doing that. Yeah, that's a good point. I think uh, lots of people just, just coming into that is consistency and how Josie was saying everything that you create should be consistent. It's, it's bang on, but a lot of people, when they're considering creating their brand, first of all, they don't understand their audience, then they don't create the right messaging, and then worse than that, they don't have a, a brand guideline document that, <laughs> I know that sounds really sad, but they don't have, even if it's just a basic one, just one page that, that explains what their colours are, what codes they've got, what their font scheme is or what, what typefaces they should use, where and when they should use it. It doesn't have to be completely detailed. It could be anywhere between one page to 50 pages. I've seen brand guideline documents, thousands of pages long. It's ridiculous. Does anyone know the difference between sans serif and serif fonts? Serif has got like a little flicky bit on each of the letters, hasn't it? And sans serif. Flicky bits. Flicky bits, yeah. Sans serif is sans the little flicky bits without i'm a genius when would you what what application or what industry would you typically this is a quiz now quiz time with tom when would you use a sans serif font the serif looks quite fancy so i'd say things like lawyers solicitors because you've got your little flicky bits on the end it just looks a bit more formal a bit fancier so quite prestigiously things while sans serif i feel like is it a lot of fashion industries seem to be going yes yeah, so like don't they? there's i mean going a step further there's, there's block serif as well like surreal the example that you brought that's like mm. a block serif because it's it's really big bold and blocky so it does Makes what it sense. says on the tin but a sans serif would typically be used for like tech companies startups or any brand really aiming to put across a contemporary image just a mod it's just modern clean yeah. Modern, clean. Ours is called Filson Pro. Uh, that's a sans serif font, and it's quite. I guess it's it's not commonly used, but it's quite a popular font, and it's really it's just clean and modern. Really. Yeah, and I, I do like the clean look of sans serif. There is a usability point there as well, isn't there? Mm -hmm. So you know, lots of websites or, or apps or anything digital, really, um, you need to make sure as part of the usability functionality that people can read it. 
yeah. uh, you know it's, it's it's easy to identify so not just your branding you know there's a functional element there as well mm. i feel like you get away with that more with sans serif fonts because they're not as flicky interestingly when i worked for the police we tried changing the logo from having a serif mm. to without and when we did the user testing, people really struggled with it without because it moved away from what they considered to be something quite traditional that they could rely on, that they trusted. Um, and without, it felt just too uh, too wayward, too modern. Mm-hmm. And we ended up having to find a compromise somewhere between the two of them that our audience were comfortable with, basically. Mm. Google's a great example. If you look at their logo, mm. I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe not that long ago but it w- they used a serif a serif mm-hmm. font yeah. and then now they're purely sans serif it's really quite clean simple do you think they've led on that tech change of fonts or do you think they've just they're just part of it i think over time companies and brands have realized that they have to adapt to, to modern times like every everyone's going not everyone but more more brands now are going down the the sans serif route of cleaner, modern, minimalism. It's technology-based as well, isn't it? Like, you think over that time, mobile has skyrocketed. Like, the number of people that have mobiles now is is pretty much everybody, you know, even Mm -hmm. down to, like, younger kids. Um, And, you know, if you have a smaller device with a smaller screen, everything on there needs to be clear, you know, the resolutions are slightly smaller. You obviously need to scale. So uh, it's not specific to fonts, but you need to make sure that that works across um, as, as many different devices as possible. So typically those, I guess, those sorts of fonts will are better able to do that. I guess there's, there's a lot of use cases as well where you can have, let's say, um, a typeface logo with a serif font and underneath it, you might use a sans serif to give it more a traditional feel, but also with the modern not using two and it gives you a bit of a contrast between the fonts as well see that coming more prominent as well so that they're not using just all of the same like for example on a website you might use a a serif font as the header or the header font and then the body copy might be a sans serif because if you have two of the same it might not be readable that's the kind of thing that you would put into your brand guidelines so you would have a um a color palette with all of the the different approved colors in there and then you would have the same for a sort of family of fonts if you like um with different um different typefaces for different applications yeah i think um that's a good point actually because some people think that you just have to have one font for a brand you might have let's say um a font that's used for call to actions such as like a let's say a script font, for example, then your headers might be a serif and then your body copy might be a sans serif. And then there's font weights that you have to chuck into there as well and consider all of that. When is it bold? When is it light? And and so on. You're getting into the real detail of it now, but in general, if you've got a document that outlines all of that, then everyone within the business is going to be clear on it, aren't they? Is there a colour that you would suggest is better for call to actions that stops people as they're scrolling and is more likely to evoke action. I would say if that's not part of their colour scheme, green, for example, then they need to revert back to a colour that is the boldest, if that's the right way of describing it. So let's say it's a really monochrome brand, they're using blacks, whites, greys, etc. Then you'd probably consider using green in that 
But if, for example, they're blue, darker blue, greys, for example, then you might want to use the blue or the lightest shade of blue that they've got in that colour palette. So it's 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 a tricky one because obviously greens are the is the type of colour that's going to generate an action because there's research on it, especially on a web page, let's say a product page, for example, but it's not always going to be usable but for, for that brand. I guess once you've considered all of the visual side of your brand, which is important, but if you've not done the bits before, how are you going to build trust with your audience? I feel like this is quite a tough one, particularly in this day and age. People really want transparency really want to see the in-depth side of your brand want to know what's going on and with things like social media it's so hard to I guess not be transparent it's so hard to keep things under wraps if there's something that you're trying to hide in your business you need to just be upfront and honest because people will find out and particularly social platforms like TikTok is renowned for dragging brands that have slipped up made mistakes and they've been caught out and they'll get brandished and they'll get dragged. For example, I think it was 2019, Millie Bobby Brown um, launched her skincare brand, Florence, I believe it's called. Um, obviously, Millie Bo Bobby Brown's in Stranger Things. She's a young actor. And she posted this video of her washing her face with the skincare products, but she wasn't actually using the products. She wasn't even touching her face. She was just pretending to wash her face. And social media absolutely rinsed her but the brand itself because the promotion that they were doing was faked none of it was real and people they don't believe it they're not going to buy into it so why would they then put their trust and spend with a brand that they don't trust yeah you've got to demonstrate what you're saying haven't you you've got to be able to prove and back up anything especially where you're making claims you know if it's about the environment or whatever you need to show that you're actually doing that and people need to buy into that with you um and it's like you say it's very easy to try and hide that or, or perhaps make claims that aren't quite true or there's a little bit of gray in there somewhere um and as you say lots of companies are getting found out about that now so one of the key things really is making sure that whatever you claim especially if it belongs in your your brand house or any of your brand guidelines whatever you claim you need to be able to demonstrate and show that you are proactively going out and doing that sort of thing um, and obviously one of those things really it takes a bit of time to to build that trust but it's something that can eradicate that trust almost overnight so it's, it's really really important that you're doing things for the right reasons because otherwise as, as Josie said you, you could lose that pretty pretty quickly. I think coming back to what Josie said about being transparent let people know what what your goals are and even your challenges as well as a business mm. like if you're more transparent with your audience then they're going to connect with you aren't they that's what I think anyway that's only my oh, personal yeah, opinion 100%. but you can use obviously storytelling on Instagram with your Instagram stories to connect with your audience emotionally because if they're going to see what you're doing on a daily basis then they're going to connect with you aren't they and, and, and it's going to create that loyalty. Oh yeah like behind the scenes I think Instagram stories is great use to show that because then you can keep the majority of your social media clean it's what you're doing it's sort of what you're promoting out to the world at first glance but using things like Instagram stories you can show that more in depth personality a, a little bit more i think a lot of brands have started doing that on tiktok again as well people have been a bit more playful with that yeah i i, I guess you you used to work for center park stick and center parks are a really big brand uh, did, was there anything specifically in in your brand 
not not necessarily brand guidelines, but your values and mission that was spread through employees or how would you build trust? Is there any examples that you can give there? Um, yeah, they used to take brand very, very seriously. A, a lot of weight on brand internally across the, across the business. Um, and, you know, it, it pays dividends in terms of that success or that reward at the end of it as well. And really making sure that you do things for the right reasons, uh, making sure that you're honest with, you, with your customers uh, and also making sure that uh, all of your staff are working towards the same goal. So showing people why there's a reason for doing things, the, the, the reason for um, particular branding, um, you know, might be staff uniforms are consistent with, with that. There's, you know, there's lots of touch points, as I mentioned earlier, lots of touch points with customers um, and the, and why you would do certain things in a certain way with a with a particular focus. So yeah, I, th- I think a lot of thought goes into that. Not just you know, I think a lot of big companies you know have to think about that these days and you know how they talk to cons- customers and consumers, why they do that and and um, how they do that. More importantly, um, you know, there's a lot of thought that goes into that. Because obviously we're a, an SME business. It's always nice to see or hear, should I say, what those larger larger brands are doing because we always try to put the foundations into new businesses. But I, I imagine a, a brand like Centre Parks has got a, a full-on brand and marketing team that, that handles it all. But it is always interesting to hear. From a not a social side, but also a website side, I, I think a good way of building trust is via the use of video testimonials. I know you've you've done a few Josie that aren't necessarily yeah. a video of the actual client, but it's a, a no. recording. Yeah, so it doesn't need to be even showing their faces if they don't want to be in it. I've seen a few people where they, I think it was a house movers, and they were getting the people they just moved house for a full video of them stood chatting about it. But it doesn't need to be anything like that. You can just simply get an audio clip. Just ask them to pop on a call, check they're all right with you recording it and sharing it and take that audio file you can make visuals to go along with it if you wanted or you pick out sentences from that clip that you can then write out have them put as imagery across your website you can use them in so many different ways they're brilliant for sharing on social media and it's just it it shows its value it shows it's a legitimate person reviewing you because they've they've got the voice or a person and you can just repurpose it in so many different ways yeah when when you're writing content mel do you consider the trust element there? I would say from the perspective of not overselling, um, which is a key thing in um, articles and um, blog posts because that isn't why somebody's landed on your site. They've had a question, um, they've wanted to learn more and they're expecting you to provide that and you have to meet that need without... Uh, luring them there under false pretenses just to sell to them. So that's a really key consideration to make. And it's all about um, going back to what we said earlier about uh, promising and meeting your uh, audience's expectations. If you've promised something, then you ought to deliver on it. And under-delivering on it will just lead to dissatisfaction. No, I agree. There's there's lots of things to consider, isn't there, when, when building a brand. And I think on that basis, we'll we'll wrap the podcast up. I thank you guys for, for coming on and sharing your insights. Cheers, Josie, Mel and Nick. Hope you've all enjoyed it. Thanks, Tom. Loved it, Tom. It's been great. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you, everybody, for listening. In this episode, we've talked about everything that you need to create a successful brand. 
It's essential to understand your audience, your demographics and their pain points. You can develop buyer personas to help with this, to maintain consistent messaging and strengthen brand recognition. Remember to craft a unique value proposition to foster those emotional connections, establish transparency and trust with your audience. Consider colour psychology and typography in your visual identity. It's all about creating a cohesive, memorable brand by unifying all of your visual elements as well. This will help your brand stand out in a competitive market. I'm excited to announce that our next Blab is going to be about tips for improving the performance of your e-commerce platform or online store. Whether you're a seasoned professional or you're just starting out, there's always room for growth and optimization in the e-commerce world. So join us as we dive into the world of e-commerce performance. And until next time, I'm Tom and this is Marketing Blabs. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.